0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word now, and the words to which I would call your attention this evening come to us from Joel chapter 2, as we finish out this chapter this evening. Joel chapter 2, and verses 28 to 32. Let's begin reading, though, in verse 18, get a little of the context and remember where we've come from. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's give attention to it now. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall abide forever. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we pray now especially for the special gift of your Holy Spirit. Work in us. Illumine our hearts and minds so that we might take these words, apply them to our lives, and give glory to You. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we reflected on the fact that Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 tells us of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be born a warrior son. Born with a sword in His hand in order to crush the head of the serpent. So this is the promise of the Gospel. Tonight, I want to uh, pick up on that a little bit and ask you a very simple question. Why do we celebrate the birth of Christ? That's a loaded question. Why do we celebrate the birth of Christ? There are 30 different answers in your minds right now. Some of you saying, well, it's when I get presents. Um, it's when we eat again, right? Thanksgiving is the run-up to Christmas. I heard recently that it is a particular fowl, no pun intended, to eat turkey at Christmas if you eat it for Thanksgiving. Maybe you say, well, because it's the birth of the Savior. Duh. Christ has come to earth, God Himself fulfilling His promise to redeem us and make us new. And those are all good answers. The answer I'm actually looking for is more of an instrumental answer. Why do you celebrate the birth of Christ? In other words, if we think hard about it, there probably maybe was a time in our lives where we didn't think much about the birth of Christ, we didn't make much of the birth of Christ. What makes a difference? Why do why can we go out here on the streets of Macomb and, and some people are more excited about the opening of Chick-fil-A than they are about coming to the Lord's house for worship? Why is that? Well, the reason that we celebrate the birth of Christ is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are grateful for the birth of Christ, you are grateful because the Spirit of God has made you grateful. You see, He has opened your eyes and enabled you to look in that manger and see a glorious and a wonderful sight. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to honoring the Christ of the manger. And apart from his work, it would be nothing more to us than another blip on the historical timeline. And that's what we want to think about tonight. Through Joel, God has promised the giving of the Holy Spirit. He has promised judgment and salvation to some. And as we get into this text, I want you to think with me just for a second about the remarkable generosity of our God. Consider with me for just a moment that this prophecy of the giving of the Holy Spirit comes at this moment in the history of God's people. This is not a high point. God is not singing over His people celebrating their victory over some Ammonite army or some Philistine army saying, guys, you're so faithful, you've built my glorious temple, you're walking in faithfulness to me, you're celebrating the Passover meal just like you ought to do and everything is going well, the king is memorizing my word, hallelujah, let's worship together and here's more. He doesn't do that. This comes at a low point. Why is that important to remember? It's important to remember because God is not moved by anything in mankind, do you see, to give Christ to us. It is purely a work of His free will Nothing moves Him. Nothing motivates Him to offer salvation to us except who He is. Your salvation is built on the promise of God which flows out of His loving heart to save men. And so we'll notice three things this evening that God gives through no coercion First, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Second, the promise of judgment. And then thirdly, the promise of salvation. Let's notice, first of all, this is the biggest part of the promise here is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit in verses 28 to 29. Now, let's read that together. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. Now we notice, just by the bookends, that these two verses are about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God emphasizes it by saying, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, in verse 28, And then he closes it again in verse 29. I will pour out my spirit. What does he want us to know? He's going to pour out his spirit. And this is going to be an amazing event. It's going to be an event marked by certain things. And Joel teaches us, through Joel, God teaches us three things about this event. We learn the timing of the event, the method of the event, and then thirdly, the effect of that event. Let's look at these three things together. Let's look at the timing. When is this going to happen? Remember that uh, last Sunday night, we, or I guess two Sunday nights ago, we, we noticed that at this point in Joel's prophecy, there are three time markers. The first one begins in verse 18 Then the Lord became jealous for his land. Verse 28 is the next one. And it shall come to pass afterward, and that's accompanied by verse 29, in those days. And then finally, in verse chapter 3, verse 1, for behold, in those days and at that time. So God is wanting us to understand, wanting his people to anticipate that what Joel is talking about is a real event that will happen at a real point in time. And it is marked out for us in verses 28 and 29 as afterward and in those days. So there are a couple of options for us. It might mean, when when will this happen? Well, it might mean after... The events of restoration in verses 18 through 27. After all of this takes place, after God brings the rain upon the land and everything begins to flourish again, and we have this amazing picture of Eden restored to the earth, then God is going to pour out His Spirit. I think that it actually goes back to verse 17. And that what we observe in chapter 2 verse 17, when the people are gathered and they are weeping between the vestibule and the altar, saying, spare your people, O Lord, they're crying out for mercy, is a reference to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, describe the time, they foretell the time of Christ's crucifixion, His death, and His burial. And so chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, are describing a period of renewal that comes in light of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been accomplished. He has risen from the dead, and now a time of renewal occurs. And so in chapter 2, verses 28 and following, what is described is the advent of, Not of Christ, but the advent of the Spirit's expansive work on the earth. As an interpretive key, turn over with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. What helps us to sort of think about that timeline is the fact that Peter quotes this passage of Scripture in his sermon. Beginning with verse 14, this is Acts 2, 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares... The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, what Peter is saying is that as you've observed us on the steps of this house in Jerusalem crying out in many different languages, in the languages of all the people present here, what you are seeing is not some drunk men stammering over their beer what you're observing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that God is going to pour out his spirit now you know let's take all of this in and see the big picture think about what's happening here at Pentecost the Spirit of God is sent by Christ And Jesus, at this moment, baptizes His apostles with His Spirit, and they begin to utter speech in tongues that they had never learned before. Now, these are not ecstatic, shamala-hamala-type tongues, okay? These are legitimate tongues that people could understand. Men were around uh, from many different nations. They are listed for us, and that's also important. The number of nations that were there. But get what's happening here is that in this moment, this great moment, do you see God is undoing? The judgment at Babylon and all of that division of languages and the creation of the nations now is being undone. And all the nations are coming back together to hear the Word of the Lord. And God is beginning this work of renewal in His creation and by His Holy Spirit. That's what happens. So Peter is saying to them, brothers, brothers, this moment is the moment that we have been anticipating. In John chapter 7 and verse 39, we learn that the Spirit had not yet been given why. Because the timing for the outpouring of the Spirit was to be after the ascension of Christ. And that's why He said to His apostles, "What? it is good for me to go away from you, brothers. It is good for me to go away from you. Why? Because then God is going to give you His Spirit. So what we're seeing here is that Joel, the fulfillment of this prophecy, happens when God builds up his apostles, and sends them out to now begin gathering the nations to Christ. That's the timing. Notice the method as we go back to Joel 2.28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then again in verse 29, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. What Joel is telling us... If we go back to chapter 2, verse 23, remember that God is going to renew and refresh the land. How? He's going to send rain. The, rain had, the, the land had been parched. It was so parched it was down to nothing but stubble. You could walk through, the, walk through town and every footstep, dust is going to fly up into the air. It's so dry. as a picture of God's judgment. But now, God pours out His rain on the land and He pours out His rain upon the human soul in the person of the Holy Spirit like water poured on the ground. God pours out His Spirit. Now I want you to consider something here. Um, if you mark down Isaiah 32, 15. Isaiah 44, 3. Ezekiel 39, 29. Zechariah 12, 10 all of those passages describe God giving his spirit and when it is described it is described this way and I will pour out my spirit upon you the method by which God gives his spirit is a pouring out and and this is important isn't it when we we think well how do, how does the spirit come to us well he comes from above Several hundred years ago, uh, there was a great debate about the Nicene Creed that we quoted this morning, and they said, we need to add one clause. We need to add one sentence in there because there's something lacking about the work of the Holy Spirit that you need to put in there. And so later, after they would finished the Nicene Creed, they added this sentence, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. They added that because they noted that it was very important for us to understand that the Spirit proceeds from the Son and He proceeds from the Father sent from above to us to unite us back up to Christ in a loving communion with Him. Now, as a Presbyterian, I have to make a very simple note here. When we talk about the mode of baptism, we are reflecting upon these passages of Scripture. The physical baptism that we give is a representation of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. How do we get the Holy Spirit? When Jesus said, I will baptize you into the Holy Spirit to the disciples, the picture is there is not dunk. The picture there is that the Holy Spirit descends down upon His people. And it is that pouring out of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Christ and cleanses us from sin. Thirdly, let's think about the effect of this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Really simply, lots of supernatural stuff is going to happen. Lots of supernatural stuff. But let's just notice it in two ways. One, it is an expansive work. A couple things here. Who is going to receive the Spirit? All flesh. This is not an Israelite blessing, my friends. All flesh. Every ethnicity will be privileged to receive the Spirit of God, Jew and Gentile. Children, male and female children are going to prophesy. So the promise is to you and your children in Acts 2.39... Peter, again, is reflecting on this. The promise is to you and to your children. Why can he say that? Because your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Children will receive the Spirit. Old men, young men will receive the Spirit. Male and female servants. There's no respect for station. This is not something that is given to the rich when they give their money to the, to the church. Then you receive the Holy Spirit. You can't buy it. Simon bar Jesus. It is an expansive work. Every ethnicity, every age, every station of life, the Spirit is going to go out. He's going to be poured out upon men of all types in every place. And it is an extraordinary work. Notice that there will be more prophecy. Old men shall dream dreams. Young men are going to see visions Male and female servants, as Peter adds later, will also prophesy. What does this mean for us? Well, simply that God is going to give more revelation. When Jesus promised the giving of the Holy Spirit, what did he tell his disciples the Spirit would do for them? He will remind you of my words. You see, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He illumines our minds to understand the truth. Hence, the reason that as we ended the passage before, chapter 2, verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. You're going to know it. You're going to know that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other God. How will you know that? Because the Spirit will teach you. The coming of the Holy Spirit signifies... Additional revelation. In a way, it is an answer to Moses' prayer. I want you to flip back with me to Numbers chapter 11. You know, Moses faced many, many, many frustrating moments in his ministry to the Israelites. And I want you to notice one particular one with me in Numbers 11, 26 to 30. Now, the two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. My father grew up with two men named Aaron and Baron. Some parents are not that creative. Eldad and Medad and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put His Spirit on them. You see, on the day of Pentecost, God answered Moses' prayer. And God has poured out His Spirit indeed on all His people. The Spirit enables us to understand God's revelation. He gives us knowledge of the Lord. It is a supernaturally given knowledge and understanding not naturally attained. You can study and study and study and study every aspect of God's revelation in creation and in the Word. And you will never ever come to a knowledge of the truth apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit signifies additional revelation. But the coming of the Holy Spirit also signifies something else the end. When Peter preaches this passage, he doesn't say, and it shall come to pass afterward. He said, it shall come to pass in the last days. We are in the last days. You say, I know that, obviously. Simply understood, we live in the final era of redemptive history. And so, secondly, not only does God promise the Holy Spirit, He promises judgment. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The first part of this prophecy gives us, similar to the first part, kind of the where and what. The time of the end is going to be manifested in some cataclysmic sort of images. On the earth, there's going to be blood and fire and columns of smoke. In the heavens, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Now, this is, that part's not new to us. If you, if you remember, uh, in the prophecy of the end, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we, we read this. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the sun, stars withdraw their shining. And this is simply a picture of decreation. The the light God has given you, He's going to take away. He's literally going to put out your lights. That's going to happen again, Joel says. It's going to be marked with blood and fire and columns of smoke. And I want to read to you with reference to the columns of smoke from Song of Solomon, chapter 3. What is that coming up from the wilderness? <clears throat> what is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon, he made its posts of silver. Its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Jerusalem, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. The only other place that we find this reference to columns of smoke is Solomon being led along in the wilderness with these pillars. You can, you can sort of sense that they're going along with myrrh and frankincense, which should re- register with you at the advent of Christ. And there are, uh, there's a cloud, literally a cloud of incense going up around them. This perfumed air going up around them. All with their swords attached to them. And Joel, drawing on this imagery, marks the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the great and awesome day of the Lord. This day of judgment is led by Christ the King coming for His wedding. And we learn that what is a day of calamity of some will be a day of salvation for others. Lastly, It's not only the promise of judgment, but there is the promise of salvation in verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. As we think about going back to Acts chapter 2 and the way that Peter preached this text there. He puts all of this together in one simple message for the people who were gathered in that town square. And in a sense, he's saying this: brothers, think about what you've observed here today. As Haggai prophesied, there's a pure language spoken. Everybody understands. Everybody understands. The Spirit has been poured out. You have seen the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Now understand this. God is calling you to repent. These are the last days. There won't be another epoch of time. The next event on our horizon, dear brothers, the next major event is the Lord Jesus Christ appearing with all His servants, with their swords strapped to their hilt, ready to cast out Satan and all of his servants. Therefore, repent and be baptized. And we read in Acts 2, 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the gifting of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Again, he's thinking about Joel's prophecy there. And he's saying, whoever comes, go out, receive Christ, repent, believe be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit yourselves, and go tell everyone, everyone in Judea and in Jerusalem and in Samaria, tell all the Gentiles, this was Israel's purpose from the very beginning, to be a gift to the nations, and now God's work has begun. Some will escape. Some will escape the coming judgment. Who are they? Those who repent and believe. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We live in an extraordinary time. We think about the extraordinary moment of Christ's incarnation. I can't imagine being there with those shepherds when the hillside lit up with the glory of the Lord. But we should also think about the extraordinary moment of God's outpouring of His Spirit. Man. It doesn't overshadow Christ's incarnation. But apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit, not one of us would benefit from the incarnation. Not one of us. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, the incarnation would be nothing more than an historical event for us. The Holy Spirit, poured out from above, clears away the darkness created by sin, and lets the light of God's truth shine in. Let's pray. Our dear Father, what have you done for us? Everything. Not only have you sent your Son to die the cursed death of the cross, to undergo all the miseries of this life, to, to die, and to remain under the power of death for a time. You did that. You raised Him up. Causing Him to be the first fruits of the resurrection. You provided the, the way for our redemption. You accepted in your mercy His righteousness as our righteousness through faith and not only that but you've given your Holy Spirit who causes us to understand your word who causes our hearts to adore and love Jesus Christ as Savior and King and who prays for us when we don't know what to say Father, You've done it all. And so we magnify Your generosity. We magnify Your grace. And we ask that You would help us from here on to walk in light of all You've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.